Praise God, well it's good to be with you again. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the letter to the Romans, and I want to read to you chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. The letter to the Romans, chapter 12, and I want to read verses 1 and 2. And if you've been around in the last uh, couple of days, you will know why this verse attracts my attention. It's because of the word body and the word mind that we have in these two verses. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds so that by, by proving these things you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As I say, if you've been around the last couple of days, you will know what interests me about these verses. It's the word body. I appeal to you, says Paul, to present your body. And it's because it's got the word mind in it, be transformed in the renewing of your mind. However, it doesn't matter whether you've been around the last couple of days or not. These verses are, are exciting verses just on their own. So let me just uh, take them as they come. Paul is at the turning point of this letter. This, these two verses are the point where Paul turns and shifts from one major topic to another major topic in the middle, or somewhat toward the middle, of this, this great letter. For 11 chapters... He has been expounding the gospel. And now he is coming to the last section of the letter. The last section of the letter goes from chapter 12 up to the end of chapter 15, and then he gives his final greetings. So it's the last major section in the letter. And the last thing that the Apostle Paul is going to do, as he writes to his Christian friends in Rome, is he's asking them to apply everything that he has said. He has been expounding the gospel uh, for chapter after chapter in our Bibles, he, he didn't use chapters but uh, in our Bibles we have chapters he has been expounding the gospel for chapter after chapter and now he says well I appeal to you therefore in the light of all that I've been saying for these uh, 11 chapters now I'm asking you to apply and put into practice and do and work out the kind of things that I have been saying to you so it's the, the kind of swivel, the kind of hinge in the in the letter where Paul moves from what he's been saying to how it is to be practical and how it's to be applied and for the next uh, four or five chapters he will work it all out in with regard to the body and the mind and the church he'll say having gifts that differ let us use them the various circumstances we face in life the state he'll say obey the powers that be Dif differences of opinion in the church he'll say him that is weak in the faith receive and not for doubtful disputations he He's applying his message and pressing the implications upon the people as to, as to what the practical significance is of what he has been saying. But let me remind you what he has been saying. He has been telling them about the greater message of salvation. You remember, if you know your Bible a little bit, you, you will remember Paul had never been to Rome. And even when he writes this letter, he's never been there. 
but he hopes to go there. He tells them, I want to come to Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. But he can't get there just yet. And he, Paul is a very controversial figure. People wonder about him. They ask questions about him. They especially wonder why he does not preach the Jewish law. He is a Jew. He is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's a Hebrew-speaking child from Hebrew-speaking parents. He, uh, he, more than anybody, you'd expect to be preaching the law, the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. But he doesn't do it. He, he doesn't preach the law of God from the Old Testament. And that puzzled people. Why, why, why doesn't this guy preach the Mosaic law? How, and how can he go to Gentiles? I mean, surely, surely God's people are the Jews. How comes this man, Paul, can go to the Gentiles? So they had all sorts of questions about him. So what Paul does is he sends this great letter, longest, longest of his letters in the New Testament, he sends this great letter to, to explain himself and tell them what his message is and why he does what he does and how he relates to Israel and so on. It's a kind of a advanced preparation for a visit that he wants to make to them. He wants to go there, establish the church, and then he wants to go to Spain. He wants to move on to the, to the western part of the Mediterranean area. And so he writes this great letter. So it's his kind of exposition of what he preaches, and especially what he preaches in relation to the Jewish law and the people of Israel, and uh, who he is and, and why he's doing what he's doing, and what he'll preach about when he gets there, when he gets to Rome. This is, this is what he's going to preach about when he gets there. It's a kind of preview of what he will say when he gets there. So what is his message? Well, first of all, he begins with sin. He says the wrath of God is poured out upon ungodly people, upon all wickedness and unrighteousness of men and women, and uh, upon the Jews also. He says if you're, if you're under the law, well, you'll be judged by the law. He says every mouth, in chapter 3, verse 19, every mouth is stopped, and the whole world is held guilty before God. He comes to that kind of climax in 3, 19 and 20. Everybody is guilty before God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he puts it like this. He says, every mouth is stopped. By which he means you can't argue back. You can't say, oh, but, oh what about this? Or I'm not as bad as anybody else. No, no, your mouth is stopped. <laughs> of, course, of course, the Apostle Paul never had these problems, but... Uh... <laughs> Every mouth is stopped, and the whole world is held guilty before God. It's the wrong way around. <laughs> no, I come from Africa. I'm used to just standing under a tree. <laughs> Every mouth is stopped, and the whole world is held guilty before God. But then he says, but. I always love the, the way in which the Bible has sometimes paints this terrible picture. And then he says, but. But God, or but now. In Romans 3.21, he says, But now the righteousness of God is revealed. Although, although the predicament and the plight of the human race is so terrible, and every mouth is stopped, and the whole world is guilty before God, ah, it's all right. But, but now a righteousness of God is revealed without the law, and through, through the person of the Lord Jesus. And God has put Jesus forward as a as a propitiation, as a sacrifice that turns away God's anger from us. And he goes on working it out until the end of chapter 4. It's by faith. Abraham believed God. To him who does nothing but believes in God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. And he, he works out what is the way of salvation through Jesus. God has put forward Jesus, and he's the sacrifice for our sins. 
And then in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, that now, now then, having been, having been justified by faith. And he begins to work out the consequences of what happens to you immediately when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Having, having been justified by faith, we have, and for four chapters he goes on to say what we have. We have peace with God. We have access into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He's he's expounding the things that we have. We have a new position in Jesus. We're not in Adam anymore. We are in Christ. Where sin once abounded, grace abounds all the more. God's salvation is bigger than than sin. The, The Spirit is bigger than the Lord. Jesus is bigger than Satan. Where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more, he says in chapter 5. Then he says we've died to sin. We're not under a a regime and a kingdom of sin. Chapter 6. We've died to the law. The reason why I don't bother with the law, says Paul, is it's not the way of salvation. Salvation comes without the law. We don't go through the mosaic system and there's no condemnation. We're not under the law anyway. We've died to the law through the body of Christ, through, through Jesus' body upon the cross. And then he says, there's therefore now no condemnation. If you're in Christ, you are never going to be condemned. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And he he works it all out in great detail. It's God who justifies, who can condemn. It's Jesus who's died. It's Jesus who's praying for us, who can separate us from the love of God in Christ. I am persuaded. Nothing, nothing, neither life nor death, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ. He works out this greater position that we are in. Then he deals with Israel. What about Israel? Haven't they fallen out of God's grace? He answers that. God never promised to save every Jew. They stumble because of their unbelief. In any case, some Jews are saved. Paul says, I'm a Jew. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. You can't say God's against Israel, says Paul, because I'm a Jew. And in any case, the story is not over yet. God will reach all nations. And finally, all nations will be touched with the gospel, and even Israel will come in. All Israel will be saved. They are the last people to come in. They are the last people to come in. Some people think uh, we should focus on Israel. Well, if I understand Romans 11, Israel are the last people to come in. There's more hope for Palestinians than there is for Israel. They'll, They'll come in first. And when the fullness of the Gentiles come, all the nations are believing in Jesus, Israel will want what what everybody else has. And so, all Israel will be saved. Even they will come in. So at the end, they're not the first, they're the last. And then he he just uh, ends with that burst of praise and marvel and wonder. At the end of chapter Romans, uh, Romans chapter 11, oh, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who could have ever have thought of something like this? The great proof of the gospel is, the great proof that the Christian faith is true. You want to know why the, the Christian faith is true? I'll tell you why, because nobody else could ever have dreamed it up. (laughs) It is totally beyond any man to have ever invented a thing like this. And even the things that people stumble over. When people say, well, how can God be one and three? How can Jesus be God and man? Even, Even the very things that people stumble over are the proof that they are true. 
because, because we would never have invented such a thing. We would never come up with something that's not always easy to defend. We would never have invented such a thing. No, no, this comes from God, and it has to be from God. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counsellor? Whoever came to God said, Lord, let me, let me tell you how to do it. Who has been his counsellor? So who, who has given a gift to him so that he, so that he the giver, might be repaid? Lord, who can say, well, Lord, you know, I think you, I think you owe me. No, no, who can say that to God? From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. That, that's the end of his great exposition of the gospel. If, if, if you're not, if you're at, the, at the end of the story, if you are not lost in admiration then you haven't understood it yet. As soon as you see it, you will marvel. As soon as you see it, you'll be lost in, in wonder and admiration. You'll say, well, nobody could ever have done this except God. This comes from God. This is for God. This is unto God. You, you'll see, as soon as you see the gospel, that's the way you'll, you'll end up. And that's the way Paul ends up. But then he says, now, one more thing. I appeal to you therefore if, if all of this is true well it has some practical applications it's, it's not just some doctrine or teaching or something that we admire it's not just a theology it, it's, got, it's got a practical relevance and so now he says well I've told you all these things now now I'm appealing to you I, w- I, want, I want to see your lives change I want to see you new people uh, and I want you to cooperate and flow with God I, I appeal to you therefore and now he begins to, to uh, appeal that, that actually work out what this means to them in a practical way, the practical application of this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, there's lots of things we could notice here, we could uh, stay with these verses for a long time. Uh, I want you to notice how he preaches holiness. It's very important for us to see how Paul preaches, and the rest of the Bible preaches holiness. How does Paul preach holiness? Well, He's not just a preacher of morality. Normally people who want other people to live a godly life, they they preach morality. They say, we mustn't steal, you mustn't lie, you mustn't do this, you mustn't do that. If you're a politician, you say, we must work hard or don't swindle your taxes. You're you're dealing with morality and and behaviour. Well, Paul doesn't preach quite like that. And these these 11 chapters, he's hardly told them what to do. There's scarcely anywhere in these 11 chapters where he's told them very much about what to do or how to live. He gets to it eventually, but not very quickly. No, no, you don't begin with what to do. You begin with what to know. You must know that you're a sinner. You must know that Jesus died for you upon the cross. You must experience things. You don't begin with what to do. You begin with what to know and what to, what to experience from God. And then the Bible says, well, now I appeal, I appeal to you, therefore. Now, now that you've got all this, now, now work it out. This is the Bible's way. The Bible does not appeal to, to, uh, to fear. So many, so many ideologies and... Religions, and sometimes even parents and teachers. If you do this, you'll, you'll, you'll be in trouble. If you do that, you'll get AIDS. If you do this, you, people will, won't respect you. If you do this and you get caught, you'll be in prison. They, they use fear. They, they, they uh, persuade people to do this and that just by the fear of the consequences. The Bible does that a little bit, but not much. 
when the story's all over, he'll say, well, if you don't want God's grace, and you're facing God, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But, but that's, that's, that's after. That's after the gospel. If you don't want grace, well, then, then you've got God's judgment. It doesn't begin with judgment. It begins with mercy and grace and an offer. It says Jesus died for you. Don't start talking about the wrath of God very much and, until... Uh, until you're rejecting something. Then he'll say, well, the alternative is God's anger. Even in Romans 1, where Paul says the wrath of God is revealed, he's taking it for granted that they know something about the goodness of God in creation, that the heavens declare the glory of God. God's been so good to you, but if you won't have it, it was only the wrath of God. So fear comes in a little bit, but it comes in afterwards. It comes in if you reject the gospel. If you reject the gospel, well, there's nothing left except a a fiery expectation of judgment. He, that's not his message. He, and, and nor does he bring law. He doesn't say, uh, the law says, you should not steal, you should not commit adultery, you must not kill. He, he doesn't talk that way. He says, uh, I appeal to you. Yeah. Mosaic law never said that. I mean, the Ten Commandments says, never said, well, you know, I appeal to you, don't, don't commit adultery. No, the, the law never said that. The Lord just said, you shall not, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery. There's no appeal there, there's there's a demand and threat. The great thing about the Christian invitation to godly living is it goes higher than the law. And uh, it's not just threatening us and telling us things to do. It's saying, look, look, don't don't you know where you are? Don't you know you have the power of the Holy Spirit? But don't you know you can love people? Don't you know you can be pure in heart? Don't you know you can be magnanimous and kindly and generous? These things are possible for you. I'm asking you, go go to this this high level. You see, the reason why there's just appeal and invitation and not not threat and law is because it's higher than the law. It's not less than the law. It's not that that we are immoral or we we, we wicked, but it's higher than the law. Spirituality is higher than morality. It goes higher still. It's full of love and mercy and tenderness. You can't legislate those things. Imagine that the British Parliament were to to promulgate a new law. We, we promulgate as the national law of Britain. You must be kind to each other. How could they administer it? What, would the policeman go around checking up on how kind you are? How can you you administer positive law? You can't administer positive law. You can only administer administer negative law. Don't do this and don't do this and don't do that. You can can check on that. The policeman can can arrest you you if you do this and this. But you can't arrest people and put them in prison for not being kind or not forgiving their husband or their wife in a quarrel or not being nice to the poor. You, know, you can't put people in prison if they're not nice, nice people. No, no, you can't legislate for spirituality. You can't legislate for things that go higher than the law. And that's why Jesus and Paul and the others, they, they're not so much commanding you, they're more inviting you. Jesus says, if any, if, any, if any person, if any person wants to come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. You can't imagine the law saying that. The Mosaic law never says, if any person wants not to commit adultery, it, no, no, it, it doesn't talk that way. It's not sort of inviting you, but you see, spirituality, it, it's, it's something that's willing, it's personal, if any one person, it, it's, it's something that you must want in your heart. If anybody wants to come after me and reach high levels of achieving something for God, this is the Bible's way of preaching holiness. It begins with tender appeal. 
It's exhortation. It's, it's saying, look, look, just, just see what the Lord has done for you. See, see what's possible for you. I'm asking you, see this and uh, go after it. It's the New Testament way of preaching holiness. And you'll notice that it's logical. I appeal to you, therefore. It's logical. The logical outworking, says Paul, of everything I've ever said. If you believe that you were a sinner, but you've been saved. If you believe that you're now full of the Holy Spirit, and God's given you everlasting life, the power of God is in you. You can do all things through Christ who is in you, and and willing to enable you to achieve all things. If you can wrestle against Satan, and having done all, still to be standing if that's who you are well then well then I appeal to you therefore therefore it's just logical how can you say that you've got God and then be worrying about how you can live how can you say that you've got the power of the Holy Spirit and then go and go on living in the old way it's illogical it doesn't make sense oh no the, the Christian gospel comes and says no no just think a bit let's be logical just work out where you are You've died to sin. You're not under sin. You're under the power of the Holy Spirit. You're not under the law. You're under the grace of God. And where sin was once in your life, now the grace of God is so much more powerful than anything that you were before. Well then, I appeal to you, therefore, therefore, it's logical. It's what makes sense. It's just, it's just the outworking of what's true. And this again is the difference between morality, pagan morality, and Christian spirituality, pagan morality, is putting on an act on the outside. You, 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 you get respectable and you behave yourself and you dress nicely, put your collar and tie on and you, you're, you're nice to people, but it's, it's all a kind of act, it's a kind of facade. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees, they were so moral and upright, but remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees, he says you're, you're like a, a cup that's been washed on the outside, but in, inside you're, you're full of dirt and filth. You're like a whitewashed tomb. There's some tomb, it's painted with, with whitewash, it glistens in the sunshine, looks so beautiful, but inside, nothing but skeleton and bones and death. And he would say to these Pharisees, you, you're like a whitewashed tomb, he would say. Jesus wasn't always politically correct. But uh, that, that's morality. Morality is, is putting on the kind of facade and behaving well, not getting caught and not ending up in prison and being a nice, respectable person. That's morality. And you do all sorts of things if you're sure you're not going to get caught. But you see, spirituality is living in the presence of God. Spirituality is hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It's much higher than, uh, than, than pagan morality. So it's logical. But also, not only is it logical, even pagan, even non-Christian people often appeal to logic. Utilitarianism, the ethical system that's known as utilitarianism, uh, it, it appeals to logic. You know, it's, it's best it's best if we live this way because if we don't, we will be in trouble. It's appealing to logic, but it's always cold. It's a kind of cold logic. But the difference between that and the Bible is that the Bible is not just cold logic. It's what I would call warm logic. I appeal to you, therefore, and notice the next phrase: by the mercies of God. In other words, there's something, it's not just purely logical, there's something tender-hearted. There's something that appeals to your heart and your feelings and your emotions. You know, how can you be so ungrateful when God has done so much for you? He's been so kindly, he's been so tender, he's not dealt with you according to your sins, he's not rewarded you after your iniquities, he's forgiven you a thousand times, he's rescued you when you, when you were wandering so far, he's been so good to you. Now, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. How can God be so good to you and you be 
so ungrateful? You see, the Bible appeals to us to be grateful. Holiness in the Bible has a lot to do with gratitude. If God has done so much for us, how, how can we repay him with, with wickedness and sinfulness? How, how can we not respond to him? It's appealing to the heart. That's why music comes into it. The law never sings. There's no, there's no songs in the Ten Commandments. You, you go to some ethical system or you listen to the, the Houses of Parliament, they don't sing songs. It's we that in the church, oh, for a thousand such tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. So, I mean, we sing, we praise, we worship. It's not just, a, we're not just intellectuals sitting in universities taking notes. Oh, no, no, we're praising, we're worshipping, we're moved, we're stirred, oh, for a thousand tongues. Remember how that song got written? John Wesley, uh, Charles Wesley, was walking along the street of Oxford. Someone said to, he said to somebody, praise the Lord. And the guy replied to him, yeah, one, one tongue is not enough, I wish I had a thousand tongues. And that gave Charles Wesley an idea. And he went away and wrote, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. You see, it's only the Christian church that does that. No, no, no one else does that. You know, you go to some moralist society or you hear, you hear the Prime Minister telling you to work hard. Or maybe the British Prime Minister doesn't tell you to work hard. Come to Kenya, we'll tell you to work hard. And uh, <laughs> these kikuyus, they always tell people to work hard. But they don't sing, oh, for a thousand times. No, no, it's just oh, work hard and do this, you'll be in trouble if you don't. It's, it's cold, it's moralistic, it's legalistic. But you see, in, in the Christian gospel, there's not just an appeal to logic, there's a, an appeal to the mercies of God. And notice it's plural. It's not to the mercy of God, it's to the mercies of God. He's been good to you a thousand times. He's rescued you, he's saved you, he's given you a new nature, he's forgiven you all your sins. He, he's, just, he's just overruled even your mistakes. He says, that's all right, I'll overrule them. I'll work all things together for good for you. I'm, I'm going to stay with you no matter what. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. He stays with you. It's, it's such kind of kindness. Haven't you discovered this? Haven't you discovered how good God is? A thousand times God could have given up on you, but he never did. Isn't that true? Isn't it true of every one of us? true of me, and tell you, God could have given up on me a thousand times. But he's still with me, he's still with me. Oh, I appeal to you, says Paul, by the mercies of God. He's been so good to you. And this is the way to handle yourself. When, when you're wanting to, to encourage yourself and handle yourself in God, you don't just uh, read the law books or tell, say, I must do this, or grit your teeth, or say, well, I'll go to hell if I don't do this. No, no, it'll, it'll have no power. That kind of thing has no power to it. What you do is you remind yourself of how good God has been to you. You go back to God's grace. You get, this, is, this is why the Lord's Supper is here. I mean, well, why should we have this bread and the wine? Well, because every time we meet almost, or, and regularly from time to time, we, we look at this, uh, this blood, we look at this cross, and we do this in remembrance of him. We never allow ourselves to forget that Jesus died for us upon the cross and has transformed us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And then we say, well, if God has done this for me, how can I not be grateful? This is the Christian way of preaching the life of godliness. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. And then he comes down to the details, and uh, he divides it into two. When he's asking us now to live the godly life, he begins with the, the general. 
it's always a clear, a mark of a clear thinker. And Paul is a clear thinker. He thinks very clearly. It's always the mark of a clear thinker that you move from the general and then go on to the particular. You look at the total situation before you come down to details. That's a good way of looking at anything. And Paul does that. Before he gets down to the details, he, he looks at the entire situation of the human person and says, well, I'm asking you, this is, this is where we begin, I'm asking you to give yourself to God in body and in mind. That's his big sweeping general principle as he starts. He, he gives this kind of general invitation. I'm asking you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I'm asking you to be transformed in the renewing of your mind. He, he, he breaks up the human person into two. We, we, some of us have been looking at that. Into the body and the mind. And he says, I want to, you to give them both to God. Give your bodies to God. Be transformed in the renewing of your mind. And then he gets into details. Then, then he'll deal with the church, gifts, of the, gifts of, the, uh, of the Spirit, having gifts that differ. Let us use them. He'll deal with all the circumstances of life. Bless those who persecute you. He'll deal with the state. He'll deal with law. He'll deal with disagreements. He'll deal with all these little details. But you don't begin with the details, you begin with the general. You don't begin with minor particulars. You, 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 uh, you look at the whole position. It's a very important... Uh, principle in life. I, I'm, I'm tempted to, to wonder, although I'm trying to resist temptation. But uh, in, in any subject, never in any realm, the first thing you, you do is, is you look at the whole, the whole situation. Something that doctors do, something that medical people do. I'm reminded of a famous story. You know, I like telling stories about Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones of Westminster Chapel. I'm, I'm reminded of a very famous story when he was a young doctor in Wales, and uh, there was some incurable case. There was some woman in the in the uh, in the uh, uh, local house who was seriously ill and who was thought to be dying. And all the doctors of, of that Welsh village, Aberavon in South Wales, they all came to see her and. Uh, None of them could, could work out what was wrong with her. Finally, they called on Dr. Lloyd-Jones, who wasn't only a brilliant preacher, he was also a brilliant doctor. So they called upon Dr. Lloyd-Jones. So he came to see this lady, who was reckoned to be about at death's door, about to die. And he looked at her, and then he sent everybody out. He sent everybody out and said, Can you go away, I want to talk to this girl on her own. And she was a nurse from Bart's Hospital, when everybody had gone, he, he said to her, what did you do at Bart's hospital that made, that made them send you away? And she said, no, 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 no I wasn't sent away, I'm, I'm sick, I'm ill. No, no, you're, you're not ill at all. You were sent away from Bart's hospital. How, how come? And this was back in the 1930s. And she finally confessed that she'd had some guy in her room. And in the 1930s, in a nurse's hospital, if you did that, you were in trouble. So she got sent down for having some some man in her bedroom and uh, she was only pretending to be ill she, she was dipping the thermometer in a hot tea and making giving, you know, she, was, she was pretending to be at death's door so, so as not to go back to the hospital, hospital. so Dr. Lloyd-Jones went back out he didn't expose her he just said, no, she'll be alright in a couple of days it's nothing serious, she'll be okay he never exposed her but here's the question how did he know that she was a fraud Everybody, nobody else known it well, he told the story. She was wearing lipstick. 
He said, I've never known somebody at death's door put on lipstick to see the doctor. <laughs> no, she, she puts on her lipstick and gets herself all nice and doctor. But here's the point is, you see, if you're a good doctor, before you start taking temperatures and weighing up this and analyzing it, you just look at the person. Sometimes you'll know instantly, just with one little glance, if you see something as a kind of totality. This is the principle I'm trying to get to you. You see things as a totality. You see the whole picture. Sometimes you'll see things, you'll see things instantly when you look at the whole picture, but the guys studying the details are not seeing. I mean, some, some, guy meant, some girl meant to be dying. She's wearing lipstick. How, how comes? Why, why is she wearing lipstick? Immediately you'll know she's a fraud. Now, come back to Romans 12.1. You see, Paul says, I want you to give everything to God. He's not dealing with particulars. He's not dealing with minor details. Before you, begin, you get to details, you, give the whole, you see the whole situation. I'm giving myself in body to God. I'm giving every little bit. I'm going to present my hands and my feet and my mind and my brain. I'm giving, every, I'm giving everything I've got to God. That's the first thing. And I'm going to be transformed in the renewing of my mind. You give the whole before you give the parts. That's the principle. You deal with a total situation. It's, it's no good trying to see how you relate to the state or how you're going to use your gifts in the church or how you're going to face some circumstance if you've not given your whole self to God. Begin with the totality before you get to the details. That's the principle. In any area of life, that's the, that's the principle. And it applies to politics, it applies to education, it applies to being a parent. You, you always look at things in, in the total situation before you get to details. And so you see, Paul is not just asking us to give to get to attend to details. That's what the moralists do. They they want you to do this and do this and not steal and not lie and do these little things. But they're always minor details. The whole person is wrong, and yet they want to, they want the details to be right. You can't get the details right if the whole person is wrong. And Paul and, and the Bible begins with your total position. It asks you, first of all, to know the gospel. It's not going to get to morality in chapter 1. It'll get to these things in chapter 12. Before, it gets to, before this chapter 12, there's chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, all up to 11. How, how you know you're a sinner. How you've got to see Jesus put forward to you. How you've got to know that you've died to sin and died to the law. And nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And history is going forward to bring the gospel to all nations. Then, I appeal to you, therefore. You see, you're, you're thinking in this big, large-scale way. And so the Bible comes to us in that particular way. So it asks these two things of us. First of all, the Bible asks us, or Jesus asks us through the Scriptures, to give ourselves to the Lord in body. We begin with our bodies. And the way in which the Bible asks us to do it is to give ourselves to God with every little bit, to do it bit at a time. Paul says that he's asking us to present our bodies. He's already said this once. He, he did say it in chapter 6. And in chapter 6 he asked us to, to yield our members. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't present your members, the bits and pieces of your body, as instruments of righteousness, but present your members, every little part of your body, your members to God, because sin will not have dominion over you. You're not under law, you're under grace. Paul asks us to present ourselves to God and to do it with every little bit of our lives to give our hands to the Lord to give our feet to the Lord to give our brain to the Lord to give our lips to God remember Charlotte Elliott's famous hymn you know the hymn take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee and then she breaks up her life into all of its bits take my moments and my days 
as it go, let them be filled with endless praise. I've forgotten the detail. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my feet. What's he saying about the feet? Something about the feet being beautiful. Take my heart, it is your own. It shall be your royal throne. You, you know that great song. If you don't, you ought to. <laughs> you, you give every little bit of yourself to God. You, you say, well, Lord, I don't, I don't want these hands to do anything they shouldn't do. I don't want these feet to go anywhere they shouldn't go. I don't want my lips to say anything they shouldn't be saying. I don't want to be thinking about things they ought not to be thinking about. You give your whole self to God. Bit at a time, you present your members. And I don't only think it means the bits of your bodies. I think it also means the circumstances of your bodies. Your time, your possessions, your house, your car. You, you give yourself to God. You say, Lord, I want the whole of life to be for you. This is, this is real Christianity. Fake Christianity gives a bit of life to God. Fake Christianity says, no, no, Lord, I, you know, Sunday, that's for you. And Sunday I'm going to go to church and, I'm, and I'll dress nicely and listen to the preacher. And Monday I go back to work and start getting on with ordinary life. That, that, that's fake Christianity. You divide Sunday from ordinary life and the Sunday you're very holy and the rest of the day you're like everybody else. No, no, that, that's, that's fake Christianity. Now the, the real gospel is that every part of life you're given to God. You see, when you become a Christian, it's not just adding a religious bit. It's not that you're just an ordinary guy, but, but, but then you've got a, an extra little religious bit, an extra little holy bit. <laughs> no, that, that's not becoming a Christian. Adding a little bit is not becoming a Christian. Becoming a Christian is being born again. The whole person becoming a new person. And you know that you have been bought with a price. The blood of Jesus Christ has bought you. It's paid. God has, in the, in the Lord Jesus, he's paid a price to own you. You're, you're kind of willing slave, not, not, a, not, a, not a tormented slave, but you're, you're a servant of God. You're giving your life to the Lord now. And you yield your bodies. And uh, we, we could say much more about that, but I must, I must hurry on. Not only do you, do you yield your bodies, you're to be transformed in the renewing of your minds. Not only must you, you give yourself to God, your whole mentality, your whole outlook of life is to be totally different. You're not to be conformed to this world, you're to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, your whole mentality and thinking has got to change. And so you're a new person, your outlook on life, everything you think and believe uh, is changing now. You're to, you're to, be, you're to be changed in, in the very mentality and the things uh, that, that you, you believe. Now, now let me try to, to work it out. How do, how do you transform your whole mind? Well, first of all, it means that you are letting God teach you. You're under scripture, you're under the Bible. And the Bible gives us all the kind of basic presuppositions of life. It doesn't tell us all the details. It won't tell you how to mend your television when it breaks down. It won't tell you uh, how to pass your O-levels. It's not dealing with the nitty-gritty details, but it's dealing with all of the presuppositions, the foundations of life are all there in the scriptures. Creation, God created you. You're here in the image of God. Your problem is you fell into sin. Ah, oh, but there's a possibility of salvation. You can be rescued and born again and become a new person. The Bible's not dealing with the nitty-gritty of, uh, of the tiny practicalities, but it's dealing with all of the presuppositions of life and it's warning you that you're not to think the way in which other people think you see it's, it's a very big thing to become a Christian and just as I said 
Becoming a Christian is not a, an extra bit of religion. It's also true in the way in which you think. Becoming a Christian is not that you think like everybody else, but there's an extra few things that you know. No, no, becoming a Christian is that you have a new mind. Your whole mentality is different. Things, things that you used to love, you, you now don't even care about. Things that you hated, you now love. And things that you once loved, you now hate. Your, your whole mentality is different. And uh, you hate sin, and you're living for the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter where you are, whether you're at, at home, or at work, or at school, or in college, or in business, no matter where you are, you're a Christian person. Uh, and you look at everything differently. You, you, money is not controlling your life, and uh, pleasure is not controlling your life. There's money and pleasure there, but it's not controlling your life. And you're aware of certain things. You're aware of the world. What the, what the Bible calls the world, which means the mentality, the spirit of everybody else around us. They're, they're so greedy, they're a bit violent, they're, they're gossipy, they're manipulative. No, no, we're not, we're not, we don't belong to the world. We, we are new people. Don't be conformed, he said. Don't, be, don't put on the, on, on the, the outward appearance of, uh, of being one of the world. Don't be conformed to this world. Notice he, tra- he changes the word. And even in our English, you can see it. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. He changes the word, and in the Greek, the word is different as well. The first word means, don't put on an outer display. The second word means, word means be transformed within. They're different words. One, one refers to something on the outside, the other refers to something on the inside. It's very important for this reason, that when you are conforming to the world, you are pretending to be what you're not. You know, you go to some place where you really ought not to be, and uh, you just sort of go along with it. I, I remember something had happened to me a little, little while ago. It wasn't sinful or wicked, but uh, a couple of months ago, I think almost a year ago now, I, I went to a lecture in Nairobi by uh, Richard Leakey. You know who Richard Leakey is? The world's, one of the world's famous uh, an evolutionists and anthropologists. And he was giving a lecture at Nairobi Museums, and I went to this lecture. But it was very much a thing for the British people. He very much comes from the, from the he's very much a British Kenyan. And so all these, these white guys were there. And before the, the, the lecture took place, there was a cocktail party. And all these upper-class British guys were there, ready to hear their, their hero, Richard Leakey. And somehow I went along to it. And I was, so I was there in this cocktail party. And they said, you, want, you know, when you want a glass of champagne, I said, no, give me some Coke. And, uh, and I was there, so I was, I was there sort of mixing with these guys. And I thought, what on earth am I doing here? You know, these are not my people. You know, they might come from Britain, they might be white guys, but really, I don't belong. What am I doing? I don't belong to this world. Where, you know, where, where's some nice Christian Kenyan? I felt totally out of place. And I felt I was almost sort of pretending and acting, and I wasn't, I was sort of pretending to be what I was not. Well, that's just the thing that happened to me. It wasn't anything sinful about it. But uh, sometimes you're in the world and you're pretending to be what you're not. You know, you're just going along with the crowd, and, and, and uh, actually, you're, you're putting on a facade. You are conforming externally to the way the world's putting pressure upon. You don't really belong in that world, and you know you don't. You know that inside, you, you really, you're really not like these people. Something has happened to you which has made you different. Don't pretend anything different. Don't, don't put on a facade of being almost as though you're unsaved, and they're looking at you, they don't even know whether you're saved, because you're just acting like anybody else. You're putting on the outward facade of, as it were, belonging to them, where in fact you do not belong 
belong to them. You're conforming, you're putting on the external appearance. Actually, within, you are not one of them at all. You see, when you're saved, you're a Christian whether you like it or not. You know, you've been saved now. You are born again. There might be times when you wish you weren't born again. You might be times when you know, I wish I could, wish I could be the way it used to be. No, no, whether you like it or not, you have been changed forever. Even though you may sometimes look back and say, well, I think I'll go back to Egypt. Actually, you will never go back to Egypt. You are born again. You, ca- you, ca- you, can't, un- you can't unboil a boiled egg, can you? <laughs> Once you've boiled an egg, it's a boiled egg. You can't, you can't unboil it and put it back to where it was before. It's the same with your salvation. Once you are saved, you are different forever. Don't put on the conform. Don't, don't, don't pretend to be anything other than what you are. Don't, don't be conformed to this outer world. You are different. And sometimes you, you might even wish you weren't different, but you are. You are born again. You are God's child. Don't, be, don't even try to be conformed to this world. But uh, go on growing within, be transformed inside and understand more and more and uh, get into the will of God for your life. So he uses that change of words. To be transformed, what does it mean? It means you're learning more and more of the ways of God. You're learning more about faith. You're, You're learning more about love. You're beginning to love people. You never used to love people very much before, but now you're taking seriously that you are going to love everybody everywhere. You'll forgive your enemies. You'll pray for people who are against you. You you, you belong to Jesus. You're not the same sort of person you are. You're going to be living the Sermon on the Mount. You're going to be meek and pure in heart. You're not perfect, but you're going to be growing in grace, learning more and more and more, putting this Christian gospel into into practice and actuality, being transformed within. And it will begin to show itself in the obvious appearance of your life. Remember what what R.T. said yesterday about... um, Arthur Blessed, he's sitting in some hotel and some Arab guy's watching him over the bar and saying, what is it about you? There's something about you. What is it? I want to be like you. You see, someone can be watching you a hundred yards away and they can see you're not like them. There's something about you, you're not like them. You're different. You're in the kingdom of God. Well, give your bodies to the Lord. Work out this faith of yours. Give your bodies to the Lord. Then be transformed even by your mind, your style of thinking. Learn, learn from the scriptures. Grow in grace, grow in knowledge, grow in prayerfulness, grow in spirituality. Be transformed from within. And God will renew your mind. You, you'll, you'll grow and things will become habitual in you. It'll, be, it'll become a matter of habit to love people and to pray and to be hungry for the presence of God. These things will be ingrained in you. You're being transformed from within. And remember how the Bible says you are being changed from one degree of glory to another. You'll be, one day you're going to be glorified in heaven, but it's beginning even here. Even upon earth, this glorification is, is, is start, it's begun, it's started, and you're getting to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. It takes time, and you'll never get to the end of it. The day you die, you'll still be doing it. Your whole life you'll be growing in grace. Not growing in law, not growing in, severi- in severity, not growing in toughness, no, growing in grace. Growing in mercy, growing in kindness, grow in grace. It's amazing how people think that growing in grace is growing in law. No, no, it's not growing in law, it's growing in grace. 
You're learning more and more of the mercy and the kindness of God. And that graciousness that God has shown to you, you are showing to everybody else. That graciousness, that kindness, that mercy. doesn't mean that you compromise with sin, but even when you have to deal with sin, you're like the Lord Jesus Christ. I love just watching the way Jesus deals with sinners. Have you ever just watched Jesus, the way which he deals with sinners? Here he is with that woman of Samaria. And she said had all sorts of men in her life. And so she's living with some guy at the moment. And Jesus is so nice to her. Can you give me a cup of water? I'll just share your cup. Share my cup? I didn't think any Jew would ever share a cup with a Samaritan. Oh, well, this water you're getting, you know, you get this water, it's going to run out. Whosoever drinks of this water is going to thirst again. Oh, but the water that I can give you, I can give you some, some water in which you'll never be thirsty. Uh, he's dealing with her so tenderly, so sweetly, she, she's no idea where he's taking her. Until, until one moment she, gets, she, she wants it. Oh, Lord, I think I, think I, like, I think I like the sound of this, give me this water. Oh, really? Well, go fetch your husband. She wasn't ready for that bit. Well, uh, well, well, actually, I don't have a husband. Yeah, I know. Actually, I know you've had five. And the one that you're living with now, not your husband, is so tender, it's so merciful. The only reason why he's mentioning it is because he's going to forgive it. The only reason why Jesus ever mentions your sins is to forgive them and break the power of them. Now, this, this is grace, this is mercy, this is tenderness. You just watch Jesus. Some, some, some Pharisee wants to see him in the middle of the night. All right, Jesus, come, welcome, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you. Pharisees come to see him in the middle of the night. Some, some guy up a tree try, trying to sort of see who this Jesus is. Nick, Zacchaeus, come down, come down. I'm coming to your house for supper tonight. He's so tender, he's so mercy. He was never, he was never harsh to a woman. He was never harsh to a real sinner. He, he was harsh, harsh or tough on these Pharisees, but, but a real sinner, someone really in trouble. Jesus is never harsh to anybody who's really in trouble. He was nice to children. Sometimes children would want to see him, and they'd say, no, no, he doesn't want to see children, and the master's busy, take his children away. Jesus would say, no, no, bring them, I want to pray for them. Actually, as such is the kingdom of God. You have to be a bit like a child to be in the kingdom anyway. You know, he loves children, he's nice to women, he's nice to the poor, he's nice to people who are powerless. He is full of grace. And if you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, you'll be the same. You'll get to be like Jesus, transformed from within. It doesn't mean that you are compromised or that you don't speak out when you need to. But it means that grace fills your life. And if you do that, if you do this, God gives you three promises. Romans chapter 12, don't be conformed to this world, give your bodies to God. And uh, test it, work out this life, prove it for yourself. And three things will happen to you. You will prove, you will demonstrate in your own life something about the will of God. First of all, you will discover that the will of God is is good. Discern what is the will of God. And as you live this way, you'll discover God's will is good. Have you ever discovered that? Sometimes we're scared of what God might ask of us. We say, no, I don't think I'll do this. I'm not not sure God might ask for something I don't don't really want. I'm scared of this. Sometimes we are scared. I can tell you, Jesus is the kindest saviour that there ever was. And if you put yourself in his hands, I promise you, you will discover he is good. You do not need to fear. 
He works all things, the Bible says he works all things together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. He'll, he'll be, I promise you, he'll be good to you. you. You don't need to be afraid of him, he'll be good. The next thing you'll discover is that his will is acceptable. You thought he might ask something of you which you could not accept. You know, he might, he might ask me to do something I don't want to do. I don't think I can really surrender to him because he'll put something upon me which I can't accept. No. First thing you'll discover is God's will is good. The next thing you'll discover is God's will is acceptable. You'll find, actually, you can receive it. He'll never ask of you something which is impossible. He'll never ask of you something without giving you the grace and the help and what you need to be able to do what he says. He'll never ask you to do something which you're not made for. If you can't sing for toffee nuts, you, you won't be the choir mistress. If you, can't, if you can't put two words together, you're not going to be a preacher. He's not going to ask anything of you which is totally beyond the way you're made. His will for you fits you. His will for you is tailor-made to fit the way in which you were made. Actually, when you say to him, what can I do for you? He'll say to you, what do you want to do for me? He'll give you the desires of your heart. You'll find that when you find his will, it just fits the way you're made. It is so acceptable. You will discover that God's will is good. You will discover that God's will is acceptable. And then you will discover that God's will is perfect. That actually, you never could have designed anything better for yourself than, than his designs for you. His plans for your life is actually perfectly designed for you. It is better than anything you ever could have dreamed up for yourself. Happiness is being in the will of God. Have you discovered that? When you are in God's will, when you are given over to God, when you are, your mind is being transformed, when you are living for God, when you're clean and pure and you've got a good conscience and you're not perfect, you sin every day of your life, you have to confess your sins every day. You're not perfect, but God's with you whether you're perfect or not. He stays with you, he'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you. You discover his will is good. You discover his will is acceptable. And then, wonder of wonders, you discover his will is perfect. He's absolutely designed for you. And he brings you into happiness and peace and joy. It's an amazing thing to be a Christian. Have you discovered it? Have you been born again? Uh, anybody here who's not come to this salvation yet? Have you been born again? You're a new person. The old person is gone. And you're a new person. You're born again. You're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. You have everlasting life. While I appeal to you, therefore, give your bodies to God in every detail. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And discover for yourself. Discover practically by doing this. Discover, prove it for yourself. God's will is good. God's will is acceptable. God's will is perfect. Let's stand and let's pray together. <laughs> Our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we just marvel again at your amazing grace. How wonderful you are, how tender you are, how merciful, how forgiving, how, how much you've rescued us, how much you've picked us up when we've wandered or made mistakes or done things we shouldn't have done. Sometimes we've even been wicked. Sometimes we've done things which are awful. But you've still stayed with us. You've still forgiven us and cleansed us and purified us. Thank you, Lord, for being so good to us, burying our sins, forgiving them, washing them away, remembering them no more. Thank you, Lord, for your incredible mercy. 
I pray that each one of us may hear your voice when you say to us, I beseech you therefore. Help us to see these mercies, these tender mercies, and trust you with every part of our life, in body, in mind, in everything. Teach us to live in such a way, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Praise God.